Hi, everybody. It's uh, Economics Matters, the podcast. I'm delighted to have Alan Roth uh, with me today as my as my guest. Alan is the founder of WealthLogic LLC. Uh, he's an hourly based financial planner. Uh, well, it's an hourly based financial planning and investment advisory firm. That's WealthLogic LLC. We should really stop right there in this uh, description of his bio because virtually nobody charges on an hourly basis. This is about as honest a way of uh, providing financial advice and investment advice as it gets because you're not charging uh, for selling a particular product, a commission, nor so you're not conflicted there, nor are you being, nor is Alan charging people for assets under management. And uh, uh, I don't know whether that can be considered a, a conflict or not, but um, it's basically, here's my advice and pay by the hour. Uh, but so he's working with, uh, uh, with individuals uh, these days, but uh, he's been in the investment world uh, for decades in both corporate and personal finance Alan uh, served as corporate finance officer of two multi-billion dollar companies. That's another place where we should stop in his bio. You don't serve as a corporate financial officer of a multi-billion dollar company unless you've got a whole lot on the ball. And Alan certainly does. And he's also consulted with many other companies while he was working for McKinsey and Company. Uh, Alan takes pride, this is what his bio says, in being mocked on a semi-regular basis by some financial professors, professionals for his hourly fee model, and it and it's obvious the inability to make him rich. So at this point, you know, Alan is trying to help you, not himself. He's also the author of How to How a Second Grader Beats Wall Street. That's a uh, a book that was republished, a second edition. It was first. Uh, uh, pr printed by, uh, published by Wiley and Sons in 2009, and then again in 2011. And Alan writes uh, for ARP, Financial Planning Magazine, and other outlets. He's taught finance and behavioral finance at the University of Denver, Colorado College, and the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. He currently lives in Colorado Springs. Despite his many credentials, he's got a CFP, a CPA, an MBA, Alan has, um, Alan claims uh, he can still keep investing simple. His professional goal is never to be confused with Jim Cramer. So Alan's got a sense of humor. He's got a, he also has a BS from the University of Colorado where he's magna cum laude uh, at uh, Northwestern, uh, let's see, no, sorry, you've got a, a BS from the University of Colorado, an MBA from Northwestern University from the Kellogg School. And then he's attended, uh, has a degree from the, or certificate from an executive program at Stanford University Graduate School of Business. So Alan, welcome to Economics Matters, the podcast. It's a delight to have you. Um, really, really happy. Uh, I came across uh, one of Alan's uh, articles uh, I found it fascinating about laddering tips. So we'll talk about that uh, later in the in this podcast. But I wanted to start off where I usually start, which is asking the guests to tell us how they got to where they are. 
starting with where they were born and how they decided to get go down this path because there's lots of younger people who are trying to decide what their career should be. And careers are kind of partly uh, self-guided and partly accidental and and you kind of make your own breaks or just are lucky. So what happened? What's your story, Alan? What's the Alan Roth? Story? I'd say 99.9% .9 accidental and 0.1% planned. Really? But you really want me to start where, where I was born. Okay, I'm a native yeah. Floridian. Okay. Um, I went to University of Colorado at Boulder because it was number one in my field. It was the number one party school in the country at the time. It's gone way downhill since. But uh, And I had taken a aptitude test in uh, high school that said I should be an accountant. So I majored in accounting. Uh, I'm old. I went to work for one of the big eight accounting firms. It's now KPMG and the big four. Uh, I did auditing for roughly two years. It seemed like 20, but it was only two. Uh, that was definitely not my calling in life. So I went back to grad school to get my MBA at uh, Kellogg at Northwestern. For really greedy reasons, I wanted to learn how to beat the stock market. And instead, what's one of the first things you learn? Burton Malkiel's random walk down Wall Street, uh, not to do that. Um, so anyways, after the uh, business school, I wanted to go big companies, big oil and gas, and there was nothing bigger than Exxon at the time. So I did public or I did uh, work for Exxon and uh, a couple of very large companies. I got enticed to go to work for McKinsey and Company, which was a lot of fun. I got to travel the world, all strategic uh, consultant uh, consulting. It was a job that I never loved so much or hated so much often in the same day. I loved it at two o'clock in the afternoon. I hated it at two o'clock in the morning. So it was a lot of travel, a lot of hard work, but it was fun, fascinating sorts of work. I went mm -hmm. back to uh, the corporate world, uh, Kaiser Permanente and, and what's now Anthem, and got to be financial officers of both of those companies. So everything was going well until I hit my midlife crisis. My son was born. Um, and I, I liked the corporate finance world, but it was never my natural habitat. Um, so I had been very frugal my entire life, made good money, and I essentially retired in, in, in my mid-40s. And oh to God. say that I failed retirement would be an understatement. I lasted less than a month. I, I had no uh, passion that I, I didn't enjoy golf or other things. I had nothing to do with my time. So uh, in, in a few weeks, I found myself um, starting to do some financial planning. And it was very easy for me to get the CFP because uh, for some reason with a CPA, they allow you to challenge. So you don't even need to take the coursework. You can just sit down for the um, exam. And um, uh, as I was starting to, uh, why did I pick hourly? Well, you know, every profession on earth is fee for service. Sorry for this really bad joke. You can edit it out, but even the oldest profession on earth is fee-for-service. <laughs> uh, so to continue to charge hourly, to do to build very simple portfolios, I'm a big believer in broad, cap-weighted uh, index funds, and to continue to keep charging 
uh, just didn't make any sense to me. Now, admittedly, if I were young early in my career, I could not have chosen that model. My, my first year, I had $500 worth of revenue. So I had a lot of time on my hands. So I was asked to teach at University of Colorado. I said, sure, that sounds like fun. Um, the local Colorado Springs Business Journal said, we can't pay you, but you wanna write a couple of columns for us? I said, sure. Next thing I knew I was writing for Money Magazine. Um, and, and then the, but that was really a fun column, by the way, the Money Magazine was called The Mole. So it was an undercover column, uh, not in my name, uh, talking about some of the things to watch out for, for the financial services industry. So I may be the least popular. You, you mentioned Wade Fowle is the most popular person in the financial services industry. I may be the least uh, popular. And by the way, advertisers are the advertising um, uh, part of Money Magazine. They, they hated my column because advertisers didn't like some of the stuff that I was saying about various annuities and, and things like that. So the practice just kind of grew. Uh, I got busier than I ever planned to be. And that's where I am now. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, the financial planning and the writing has just kind of taken off just as journalism was going downhill. I got asked more and more to, to, to write. So yeah, that's, that's where I am today. So do you have um, employees or are you one person show? Or how, did, how have you arranged it? I am the sole financial planner. Okay. And to, to tell you why, in my corporate career, I was a really good analyst. And as an analyst, I got promoted into management where I got to do some managing and some analysis. Then I got promoted into being uh, officers where I got to do no analysis whatsoever and all people management. And that was not my strength. That's not what got me out of bed in the morning. So I, I've been asked you know, for other people to join my firm and the like. And I'm just going to keep it the way it is. I see. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Got it. And so a typical client would be anybody, a poor person, middle class, like high income? Well, no, I've totally sold out. I started to help the middle class. Um, the clients now probably average about a $15, $20 million um, portfolio. In one case, I have, you know, the, the client is in the billions. Really? Okay. Yeah. And, and, and what uh, I found over time is that the really the more fun engagements were the complex ones, helping them to move out of certain things that, um, you know, that had gated redemptions and tax implications and those sorts of things, which were really a lot of fun to analyze. I see. And, and then with my hourly model, I, I think for over a decade, I've been at about 200 or 450 an hour. But, um, you know, I can't help anyone that has a $100,000 portfolio on, on a cost-effective basis, unless I do it pro bono, which sometimes I do. So, so is a lot of the work that you're doing for clients uh, kind of tax-related? They're kind of sitting in a certain kind of a situation tax-wise and uh, in terms of their investments, they have long-term capital gains uh, and they're not fully diversified. Is that a good part of the, uh, the issue that you're trying to resolve for them? How financially secure do you feel? 
Imagine, a tool to help you make smart financial decisions. A tool that factors in all your financial data and shows what you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. That tool is Maxify. Powerful, accurate, and easy to use. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify takes the guesswork out of financial decisions at every stage of life. Maxify calculates what you can afford to spend now and throughout retirement. And you can run what-if scenarios to see how your finances might change by taking a new job, buying a home, or downsizing. Knowing the impact before you decide lets you make smarter decisions so you can finally enjoy financial peace of mind. Are you ready? Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I, Maxify.com. Yeah, I would say really the business that I'm in on the portfolio is dealing with the complexities of moving towards simplicity. So, yes, it's probably about 80% tax. Obviously, things in there, um, tax-deferred and tax-free Roth accounts, those are very simple, and getting the location there is is very simple. But um, every, in the taxable account, things get to be very complex. You know, do you gift it to charity? Do you use a donor-advised fund? Uh, can you tax loss here to be able to get out of certain things there. What's the cost benefit of getting out of a very expensive fund that has a large taxable gain? Those sorts of things, that, that, that's what really takes the time, the complexities of moving towards simplicity. The tips ladder may be the one example, uh, the exception where the, you create a little bit of uh, complexities. And we'll you're gonna talk, ask me about the tips ladder in a bit, right? Yeah, I am. I I wanted to see if we could take this, you know, given your, uh, you know, you are working probably for, well, you are working for higher net worth people. Uh, what's your general approach? Uh, you know, you're at a cocktail party, uh, your neighbor comes up and says, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm 55, I haven't saved enough. Uh, here's how I'm invested. Um, uh, I want to retire at 62. You know, what do you what do you say to them? I mean, what's your general philosophy about investing? When you say uh, you can take a whatever two year old and get them to beat Wall Street, what expand on that? <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, you've, you've cut across a couple of things. Number one, you can be an incredible investor. But if you don't save, it doesn't matter. If I'm saving $10 a year, it doesn't matter how I invest. My only chance of becoming financially independent is, is to buy, keep buying lotto tickets. Um, so, you know, issue number one is getting someone to save. And that's a very, very difficult thing. And one of the ahas that I had in my practice when I first started, um, and, and this was very early on, is people that came to me thinking they were in really good shape to retire soon had hardly saved a penny. People that said, I'll never be able to retire had more than enough to retire. And by the way, I'm in that second category. Savers are pessimists, by the way, because we save because we're afraid of living under a bridge. So that causes, and our insula um, causes pain when we spend money. And some people have an active insula 
get that feedback. Some people have an inactive insula. So people that haven't saved are generally more optimistic. They haven't learned to defer that immediate gratification. And I think that's very hard to change. I've never been able to, but if somebody comes to me and they've hardly saved anything, that they need a psychologist, not a financial planner, in my opinion. So, so gonna... in terms of those that have saved or near retirement, it's a combination of, you know, taking risk off the table. As, as my friend William Bernstein puts it, when you've won the game, stop playing. Doesn't mean you get out of stocks completely. And I'm not a believer in 100% uh, tips uh, ladder. I, I think it's very, tips are an incredible tool that we'll talk about. But, you know, any one basket, as good a basket as it is, can go wrong. The government changes the way we, it, it measures inflation uh, as one possibility. Or defaults when it's dead, right? Well, if the government defaults more than a technical default of uh, a, a few days or weeks, I, I can't imagine the stock portion of the portfolio or anything is going to be worth much. And I don't think it's going to be gold. I don't think it's going to be Bitcoin. That's, that's but, just uh, Armageddon. Yeah. So, does, does politics scare me? Absolutely. Is it a scary world right now with wars? In, in different continents, gosh, it sure is. Right. So a, a typical, um, let's say you have a 55-year-old person who has saved well, and uh, would you be talking to them about when they're going to retire? And would you be talking about them? How? To, what would you tell them about their portfolio? So some combination of tips and an index fund, would that be basically the advice? Well, that could be the advice for part of it. Okay. But again, I'm not a believer in putting all your eggs in any one basket. So okay. I think tips are wonderful right now with a real yield of about, uh, I think, 2.6%. A 30-year tips ladder, I think I looked, was, was a 4.73% uh, annual real adjusted for inflation withdrawal rate. You, you know, that's absolutely amazing. But I wouldn't give up completely on nominal bonds. And I would want some of the upside uh, uh, of the stock market. Right. Okay. So, you know, treat nominal bonds, basic bonds, basically as risky assets like the stock market and not put, uh, not assume that they're somehow dominated by the stock market because of the inflation risk, because the stock market doesn't always respond well to inflation either. So we can't say for sure. But let's let's talk about um, this issue of, you know, maybe maybe you've got a 62 year old who's just retired, and they have maybe a million dollars or five hundred thousand or two million, and they want to, you know, and, and Social Security is going to you know give them some income. Uh, so my first advice would be, you know, wait till 70 to take your Social Security because it's going to be. 76% higher, it's coming as an annuity. You're giving up eight years of benefits, but your those loss of benefits is really buying a uh, an equity, uh, sorry, an inflation indexed annuity in the form of higher social security benefits. So that's the premium for the higher annuity. So, and this is the only place you can buy on such beautiful terms, uh, inflation indexed uh, annuities. And- You took so, the words right out of my mouth. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, we're on the same page. 
But then the next thing would be uh, taking the the assets uh, and figuring out how much to you you would propose a ladder of tips and some part in risky assets, stocks, bonds, longer term bonds, commodities as well, or just you think the stock? No, I'm not is- a believer in. Co- you, for, first of all, we cannot invest in commodities. I do not have an oil storage tank in my backyard. I got it. Um, well, all we can do is invest in commodity futures. And in the history of the futures market, in the aggregate, not a penny has ever been made before costs. So, right. I, yeah, I, I mean, think about it. Think about it. Uh, if I buy a futures in oil, someone has to sell it to me. Remember when oil futures, the oil price uh, turned negative? So futures are a wonderful thing. Now, you know, Exxon was one of my first employers. And think about it, Exxon and Southwest Airlines. You know, if they can trade oil futures, um, Southwest Airlines gets a major part of its cost structure normalized without volatility and Exxon gets a uh, of their costs rather and Exxon gets a major portion of their revenue stabilized so the futures market is a wonderful thing but you're saying it's really just insurance market as opposed to an investment market absolutely it's It's like betting on a football game one of us is going to win one of us is going to lose the bookie is going to take take the profit so if you want to invest in oil, you're really forced to invest in Exxon stock and you might as well just be invested in the index then. Would yeah. Be the yeah, I see. So so for the chunk of money um, that, uh, so here's a person, he's got a chunk of money, uh, he's retired. Uh, some of it you're advocating be invested in tips and some, the rest in risky stocks and bonds and index index funds of both. Um, do you have, um, maybe it'd be good to ex- explain for everybody, first of all, what a TIPS is and what it stands for and exactly how it works and how it's taxed because that's a big risk associated with, with TIPS. And then how you would kind of, what, you, what we'd like to do as an economist, you know, we focus on what's called consumption smoothing you know, acting like a squirrel, trying to make make sure that you have the same amount of acorn, acorns to eat, whether it's winter or summer or spring or fall. Uh, so consumption smoothing means having a stream of income that's inflation adjusted that continues really until you die. That's what you're looking for. Social Security does provide an annuity, real annuity until you, until you die. Uh, but uh, it can't, you know, for most people, it's not, uh, that's not going to help handling their assets. And Social Security is not going to be uh, everything they want to live on uh, because uh, they experience a higher living standard than just what their Social Security benefit will be. So tell, tell everybody about tips, the, 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 good, the good, the bad, the ugly, and, uh, and then the laddering idea. Okay. And, is- and please feel free to fill in what I miss, but... Uh, TIPS are treasury inflation protected securities. So a nominal treasury might pay a fixed yield of, let's say, 5%. A TIPS would pay a real yield of, let's say, 2.6% plus whatever inflation turns out to be. So in other words, 
in a nominal bond, if you earn 5% and inflation is 8%, that's not good. Your spending power goes down. With the tips, if inflation is higher than expected, your payout is going to be higher. So I argue, and I argue a lot, in fact, I'm the most argumentative person in the world, that tips are the least risky investment on the planet. Now, the market disagrees with me because in many ways, tips are more volatile than traditional treasuries. So with the tips, and the S stands for securities, so singular is still tips with a S, uh, you're going to get paid a certain real amount like 2.6% plus whatever inflation turns out to be. So with the yield on tips right now, which two years ago were roughly minus 1.6%, so you're guaranteed to lose to inflation, it, it's a wonderful thing that you can not only protect against inflation, but you can grow uh, with that inflation. Now, tips um, could have been issued in a very simple manner uh, and taxed in a very simple manner, but the government chose not to do so. So the yield from the tips comes from two places. One, the CPIU, the Consumer Price Index Urban Adjustment, and that gets added to the value of the tips. And then the coupon, which is typically somewhere between as low as about an eighth of a percent to um, uh, roughly one and a half percent or so. And that comes in the form of cash. But the government taxes us based on the total. So it, it's subject to what's called phantom income or phantom income tax. So the CPIU adjustment, you don't get paid in cash. It gets added to the principal of the tips, but you still have to pay taxes on it, which is not the end of the world because um, it increases in value and it changes the basis, the cost basis of the tip. So it's more of a timing issue that you have to pay the taxes sooner rather than later. I don't like the fact that the phantom income tax is there, but it's also not the end of the world. So let where me, do you locate say, the tip? Yeah, let me, let me see if I, if I could uh, say just what you said, but it's in slightly different words, because I think uh, uh, for people that aren't as familiar uh, it's always good to hear it two different ways. So if I, let's say, bought a million dollar, spent a million dollars on 30-year tips, uh, I could buy them in the secondary market or at auction. And let's say they're yielding, uh, you know, something like uh, $25,000 a year as a coupon payment, because uh, that's currently what the, the real yield is, roughly about 2.5%. So I get this, uh, you know, if there's no never any inflation, I'm going to get $25,000 right out for the next, you know, $25,000 for the next uh, 30 years. Plus at the end, I'll get my million bucks back. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Alan, because you're the real expert. But then if inflation, let's say, was 10%, uh, what I'll get is the $25,000. But then the value of my principal will go up my million dollars at the very end will, will actually pay me a million uh, 100,000 if it's a 10% inflation. Uh, but I, that extra uh, $10,000 in income, because my my wealth has gone up 
my principal has gone up from a million to a million one hundred thousand. So that's an increase in income. That's going to be subject to taxation right now, not when I uh, receive the one million, uh, the million one hundred thousand in thirty years. So that's the notion of phantom income. You're paying taxes um, even before you get the the um, uh, and and then the so IRS. Yeah, let me just. Yeah, the IRS is going to tax you both on the twenty-five thousand and the hundred thousand CPIU adjustment. So you're going to owe taxes on one hundred and twenty-five thousand in that example. Yeah, not twenty-five thousand. Uh, okay, so that's not a good thing. That's the bad, the the bad side of tips um, that you have to worry about. Uh, and then the other thing that you said in passing is the tips. Um, if you if you bought a tip today, and let's say the real yield was two and a half percent, and tomorrow dropped, uh, it, it rose to five percentage points real. Uh, so the market value of your tip would drop dramatically. This thing that was worth today a uh, million dollars would be worth maybe you know a half a million. Mm -hmm. That's the ball, and you might think, okay, this is a really scary investment because it could like any bond it could go up and down in price on the other hand when it drops down to five hundred thousand, the yield would be up at five percent so five percent times five hundred thousand will give you back the same twenty five thousand dollars so the thing about tips is if you hold them to maturity if you just keep holding this thing you don't sell it you're guaranteed to get this twenty five thousand dollars stream ignoring you know let's leave aside taxes for a moment and the reason is is that the end value after 30 years is pegged down there's something that is unlike a stock that you could hold for 30 years there's nothing that guarantees the terminal value but with it with tips there's something that does and really with any nominal bond too uh the, the terminal value is pegged um but here it's a real you know you're going to get back a hundred thousand, hundred a million in real terms, in real dollars, in real hot dogs, in today's hot dogs, um, in thirty years. So that's why holding to maturity makes this thing completely safe. Even though if you you said, well, gee, this thing just dropped in half in its value, but one has to remember that the yield just went up in by a factor of two, so that the product of the two has stayed fixed, and so. Uh, that's why when people buy tips in mutual funds or they look at the return on mutual funds that, that are holding tips, there's lots of volatility and it doesn't look like such a hot investment. But you and I know, and we're trying to persuade everybody that the goal is not to be kind of at some point tr trying to beat the market. The, the, the goal is to kind of hold the market, in this case, hold the tips and just live off the income and that's where we come to laddering, which is how do you actually get a steady stream? I mean, if you, you know, the, the stream is 25,000 plus, plus a million. That's not a steady stream of income. And if we want to get to a steady, you know, stream, then that's where we have to do laddering. So, Alan, could you explain to everybody what laddering is about? And sure. But let me just expand Correct. a little bit on what you said before. Right. If you buy that tips yielding two and a half percent plus inflation, 
and the key is holding it to maturity, you're going to get that two and a half percent. But you've got to have the courage to do nothing along the way, because uh, you're going to see the value of that. If you buy the that individual tips, you're going to see it go down if rates go from two and a half percent to five percent. So you have to stick with it. And as you said, in a mutual fund or an ETF, you're subject to market risk. You don't know what your return is going to be. But if you buy the individual tips and hold it to maturity, um, you're going to get that return. Now, that's not to say that would it have been better to have bought it when uh, the, the yield on tips went up to a 5% real yield, which I think is unlikely, but you never know. Uh, sure, you would have been better off, but you and I know we can't predict those interest rates. I think I once asked you why uh, the the re real yield surged so much, and I think your answer was it's a mystery, which is the exact perfect answer. None of us can predict rates, whether real or nominal. Okay. So to tips ladder, um, I've always been fascinated with what a safe spin rate. And I think I've mentioned I'm a pessimist. So I think the 4% rule, or I used to think the 4% rule was way too aggressive. So it was roughly, and I've, I've been familiar with the tips ladder, which I think I, I think I first heard about it from your colleague, uh, Professor Bodie. But when tips were yielding big negative yields, I had virtually no interest in something like that. But about a year ago, you could build a tips ladder, meaning a tips that matures this year, a tips that matures next year, et cetera, and going all 30 years with the caveat that there are six years where you do not have tips that mature. So you have to kind of build the ladder around that uh, by bunching um, the, the last year before the gap and the first year after the gap. Um, as of today, you could build a 30 year tips ladder that would give you a 4.73% withdrawal rate over 30 years. So that means for a million dollars, you can withdraw $47,300 a year, increasing every year with inflation. And so was $47,000, and that, that's what you can live off of, except for the tax issues, yeah. Correct, the tax issues are real. So that has to be pre-tax, and by the way, there's, you know, there's one argument that says if you put it in the IRA, the, the, the traditional IRA or 401k, you at least don't have to worry about the phantom income tax. But there's another issue in that treasuries, whether they're TIPS or nominal, are state and local tax exempt. So if you live in a state like Florida or Texas, um, you get no benefit from that. You might as well put it in the tax deferred. If you live in California or New Jersey and are at a higher tax rate, there's an argument to go ahead and put it in the uh, taxable account. But yes, pre-tax, you are guaranteed that 47,300 every year. In fact, you could do another, um, and, and basically what you're doing is building a ladder. And, and two good sites to go to, by the way, are tipsladder.com or ibonds.info, and it's E-Y-E bonds.info that have calculators in there to allow you to do it because it's very complex. If you're trying to build that 47,300, some of it's going to be coming from the coupon. 
Some of it's going to be coming from the bonds that are mature that are also going to have the cumulative inflation already built in there. When you buy you, to build the TIPS ladder, you have to do it in the secondary market, like at a Fidelity or Vanguard or Schwab buying buying these tips from someone else. Um, you, you've got to take all of that into account to try to approximate that 47,300 in, in that example. Right. Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says Money Magic is a must read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says, you'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers. So, so now let's say, you, you know, uh, People could read Alan's columns about laddering tips. Uh, would they be available on your website? No, uh, I think, uh, actually, if you just Google my name, my parents gave me an unusual spelling, A-L-L-A-N-R-O-T-H and tips. Uh, it's a combination. I've written about them in advisor perspective. I, I've written about them in ETF.com. I'm writing a piece right now for AARP on, on them. So they're in very different places. I don't write anything on my own website. They're all um, out there media okay. that that pay me to write. To... Okay, got you. So okay, so people can can uh, you know find Alan's writings about this. But um, now that um, uh, you know you've got the tip set up, um, and you've but the tips are only uh, thirty years. At, at the max, right, in terms of long of duration. So if you're a 50-year-old, that's going to take you out to 80. How do you think, how do you advise people to handle that? Well, you know, what you could do is something like, if you want to get a 4% safe spin rate, I think the math works out to be, you could put about 84% in the tips ladder, and then the other 16% in an ultra low cost, broad stock index fund, or maybe two, one US and one international. I still believe in international. And then not touch the stock portion of it for 30 years to protect uh, the, the longevity. If, if you live longer than age 80, if you live longer than the 30 years. So that's one potential strategy for so something like just, that. Let me just comment on on that, that the this letting your stocks ride and uh, is avoiding sequence of return risk, selling your stocks when the market uh, is, let's say, doing poorly, and then having less money when the stock, when the market rebounds and you've lost out, uh, that's, you know, sequence of return risk 
So you avoid that. Uh, but then the other thing that uh, I would say as an economist, and we, we embed this in our, uh, we have this as part of our Maxify.com software uh, called Upside Investing, is that we have people, some people are buying a ladder of chips, like you're saying, but they're also not spending a penny out of their stocks. They treat, they're, they're the Alan Roth, uh, uh, I don't want to say neurotic, but uh, <laughs> go for it, say it. <laughs> paranoid, paranoid, uh, who thinks that this, uh, you know, we should only spend out of safe stuff, out of stuff we actually have for sure. So that's what this upside investing implements. It has you spend nothing out of your risky stocks, uh, which we tr treat as just the S&P 500 index. And then when you, over the period that you say you're going to start withdrawing, every time you withdraw based on different Monte Carlo trajectories, uh, whenever that withdrawal, withdrawal occurs, we assume the tips are being purchased and that then you'll uh, be able to raise your floor from that point on. So that's whether you're, you know, keeping the, uh, the the risky money off on the side and not spending out of it uh, in order to have a pot of money for your kids, uh, regard you know, you know, and it could be large or small depending on how well the market does, uh, or whether you're doing it to have upside spending power for your retirement. Uh, the same the strategy is really the same, not to spend out of it uh, and just to spend out of your uh, your tips. So we're definitely on the, exactly the same page. We implemented upside investing about two years ago. And the interesting thing, Alan, that I want to point out to you that is that in looking at somebody like, you know, a 50 year old, even a 60 year old uh, who wants to implement this strategy is that they could put relatively little of their assets in, in stock and still have a considerably, a very healthy upside maybe 20 years later when they start, when they say they'll start withdrawing at that point and converting into safe assets, uh, you don't need a lot of money in the stock market to have a lot of upside, uh, provided you don't, you know, let the thing, you let the thing ride. And letting it ride also means not looking at it, you know, treating it as money in the casino and not being tempted to say, well, I got all this money in the stock market. Now I can therefore go out, go on a vacation I would not ever otherwise have taken. The, the discipline of this upside investing is to treat that money as completely lost, as in, you're inside the casino, you're gambling, and you don't spend your winnings until you actually have them and you've left the casino. So just, you know, what's your reaction to to that? Are we on the yeah, no, that that's exactly it. And, you know, there's a, there's a couple of behavioral things about these tips and the tips ladder. Number one is, you know, I always said, you know, a bad sign on investing is something that feels good. And is something that feels bad is typically a good thing. So when stocks dropped, let's say, um, when COVID hit between in 2020, between February 19th and March 23rd, stocks dropped. 35% in 33 days. And of course, I had to rebalance, which meant I had to buy stocks, which was the most painful thing in the world. 
I mean, it was really, really hard. It would have felt so much better to have gotten out. These tips are the one exception of something that both feels good and makes incredible economic sense. So what sense, so, why did you, have, you had to rebalance between stocks and bonds and, re, and re, real estate and foreign stocks? Is that what you mean by rebalance? Between stocks and bonds. Okay. So I had to sell my bonds, which, you know, did act as a shock absorber, unlike last year, um, and, and, and buy more stocks. You, you know, at the same time that our lives had dramatically changed, we were no longer going out wearing masks. Uh, you know, the vaccines were just a pipe dream back then. So it, it was a very, very difficult thing to do. So I am absolutely a believer in rebalancing. Uh, that, that, that's, you know, one of the areas of market timing. Another area of market timing, I wrote about this 13 years ago, areas that I'm an active investor, and one of them was tips. When tips had a negative yield of 1.6%, I, I had very minimal amount, and those were in TIPS funds. Now that TIPS are yielding 2.6%, I have a lot more in TIPS, and, and I believe in the individual TIPS rather than the, the funds, with the possible exception of the BlackRock. These are brand new defined maturity ETFs. Right, there's TIPS ETFs. Alan wrote recently and in, in sent me his column about this that there are. BlackRock uh, is selling ET, uh, tips that um, just pay off the principal, no, no, no coupon payment along the way at a given date between one and 10 years, right? Yeah, it's, they actually it, pay out the whole buy. thing. Oh, okay. They get rid of the phantom income tax issue by distributing both the CPIU adjustment and the coupon. Now it's really easy on the tips ladder. I just, uh, if I use those funds rather, I just have the uh, the whole thing reinvest, both the, the coupon portion and the CPIU. And the math is really easy because all you have to do is if I was gonna buy a tips that was gonna mature in five years, a, a tips uh, ETF, the, and it's yielding 2.6%, I can just take, if I wanted $1,000, $1,000 divided by one point, uh, 026 to the fifth power, how much you have to buy. So it simplifies everything, but you also pick up a fee, a 10 basis point annualized fee. Right. Um, so uh, now let me ask you a question about the, um, the non-TIPS assets. You said uh, that you can basically get commodities by buying Exxon through a index fund. Can you get foreign investment and enough foreign investment diversification by just buying the S&P uh, or, you know, a broader U.S. index of stocks because so much uh, of U.S. corporate investment is abroad. Is that sufficient or do you think that's insufficient? I think that's insufficient. And, you know, I was really lucky in my career. I, I got to meet and talk to Jack Bogle many, many times the first time by the way, was just sending him a blind letter saying, I'd love to meet you. And a week later, getting a card, I'm coming to Colorado uh, in a month, let's get together. And, and that was one of the first, because, you know, Jack Bogle being right after his passing. Everybody, tell everybody who Jack Bogle was. Not oh, I'm sorry. Jack Bogle was the founder of, of Vanguard. 
and really the father of the, the, the first um, uh, index mutual fund, the S&P 500 index fund that he launched in uh, uh, 1975. But he has generally not been a believer in international. And his arguments were that you had enough, and, and let me just say, I'm wrong, he's right. It, it, international has long underperformed and maybe I'm stubborn and still believing in uh, yeah. diversifying. But um, his argument was that the S&P 500 had enough 40% exposure. And the second argument was that, you know, countries like France and uh, Japan, they have a lot of problems. And my counter to him was that if you had enough diversification, you wouldn't see such extreme differences in performance between U.S. and international. And those problems overseas are known to the market and, and, and the reason why they've underperformed. You know, I would argue now the reason why international is underperforming is look what's going on in the Middle East, look what's going on in Ukraine, possibility of China and Taiwan. It's a very risky world. But, you know, in my belief, you wouldn't only invest in companies that are based in Massachusetts, I wouldn't only invest in companies that are based in Colorado. Um, you know, I once joked at a, uh, at a forum with Jack Bogle sitting uh, a, a few feet from me saying, look, if I could invest in uh, stocks and uh, companies and other planets, I'd do that too. Jack, can you launch the first intergalactic index fund? Got it. So I, I'm a believer in diversification. You do not get enough, in my opinion, international exposure by buying the S&P 500 or a total U.S. stock index fund. What about real estate? Can you Do you get enough, uh, or should you be buying separate REITs indices? And what would all the, these kind of percentages be in your risky portfolio? Well, I, I first of all, a private REIT that pays a commission, you know, avoid those things like the plague. Um, but a REIT index fund, I think, can make a lot of sense. Now, uh, you know, the REITs are also owned by a total stock index fund, but if you look at, you know, global wealth or national wealth, you know, most of the um, value of real estate are not in public markets. And the correlations between REITs and the stock market are low, but not negative. So you do get some diversification. So I'm absolutely fine if somebody, you know, wants to, own a little bit of a REIT index fund, but I would generally keep it less than 5% of the equity portion of the portfolio. You're overweighting it, but you're overweighting it to more mimic national wealth rather than you think it's gonna outperform. And what percentage would you put into uh, a foreign index? And would these be uh, emerging uh, country indices or would they just be uh, some general index of uh, what's your favorite foreign index? Total International Stock Index Fund. Uh, from Vanguard, okay. Oh, Vanguard. Um, uh, you know, uh, what's it? Um, I can't think of the, uh, iShares has a very good one, but just something that is very broad. You can own over 7,000 companies in, in a total international stock index fund and nearly 4,000 companies in the total US stock index fund. And you know, for the longest time, people were saying, don't buy a cap weighted, you know, smart beta, small cap value, 
et cetera. And guess what? Small cat. I was at a conference, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years ago. And, and, and I couldn't go for more than five minutes without hearing the term smart beta. That was a warning sign. You know, look what has been the drivers of return, the large cap growth tech companies. For a while, almost the entire return of the U.S. stock market this year came from the Fantastic Seven stocks. Question, how financially secure do you feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer. Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful. Accurate. Easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. The, the biggest... Uh tech uh, companies uh they, they've done quite well and they've brought up or kept uh, the value of the s p uh from plunging i guess significantly so um any any parting thoughts on uh on investing you're saying that a two-year-old can beat wall street by he was a second grader he was eight years old sorry second why is my son an eight-year-old. Now he's 26 now, so he's lost a lot of his advantages because the older we get, the more money means to us and, and the more emotional mistakes that we make. So, so uh, I would I would agree with you. We I, I find it remarkable that um, you know we have the software that is really you know fantastically powerful for helping people make all kinds of life cycle decisions, whether or not they can afford to get divorced, whether they should take this career, switch jobs. Uh, if they retire this age, how much will it impact their living standard versus this age? When to take social security, all these things. And I have a department of, you know, about 35 other economists. And the number that are using this tool, which is perfectly free because Boston University provides it for free, I think about five people, five economists. They all think they're they're doing it right, or they're all afraid. I'm not sure whether it's fear or or uh, pride that's their problem. What do you think might be the case? I mean, what's your sense? You, you know, I don't know what this is a myth or whether it's true, but Harry Markowitz, the founder of sure. Efficient Frontier, uh, I think he was once asked, "Well, how did you design your portfolio?" And his answer was 50-50. Why? To minimize regret. <laughs> so, right. you, you know, I will tell you, I have some um, clients that are really world-renowned in the world of behavioral finance. And understanding the theory and actually implementing are two very, very different things. Right. And by the way, just to connect uh, our discussion about 
uh, upside investing or putting a floor to your, your living standard with the tips ladder and then having upside either for a bequest or for uh, for future uh, higher spending power, upside spending power. Um, this really does connect to behavioral finance because the one thing that people don't want to do is see or you know have happen is have their living standard decline dramatically in retirement. They that's really what they're most afraid of, and so they've gotten used to they're they've gotten addicted to their prior living standard, and having it decline is a major loss. So that's why this tip strategy is really feeding into that behavioral uh, instinct, the instinct of the squirrel. It's not like it's, you know, bad behavior or screwed up behavior. It's just natural behavior. And none of us want to see our living standards decline because um, we uh, will be, you know, I guess we'll just remember how things were and we'll be very upset. Having just upside risk is a, a good thing. And it's but there's a, a second behavioral reason as well. And remember, I mentioned that savers are pessimists, right? And we're always afraid to spend. So you know, my insula trained me to live frugally, and all of my clients are, are essentially in that same category. And helping them spend money is a very, very difficult thing that I can relate to. I wrote a piece not too long ago how to help clients spend more money and the tips ladder along with social security you oh, know sure. for me gave a six-figure floor knowing that if things got really bad you know we own our own home we, we don't have a mortgage we could live that way and it was kind of as david blanchett i think you interviewed him didn't you mm -hmm. as he put it you know it's a license to spend yeah yeah, so David, that allows me to be a little bit less frugal, along with some other strategies like reframing an expense, right? As help helping live longer, helping safety, those sorts of things, versus having a fancy Tesla sports car. Yeah, more safe. I think that's a great insight. Um, uh, you don't want to worry about having your living standard drop, but if you don't want to be so worried that, uh, but here's a way you can arrange to to spend and not have to worry about that, but that, and that does give you a license to spend, which, um, yeah. So, um, Alan, this has been, uh, terrific. I really appreciate, uh, you're coming on. We're going to stay in closer touch going forward and have you back. And, uh, hopefully, um, uh, people will listen carefully and, uh, take your very good advice. Uh, so thank you once, once again. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Larry.